The U.S. seems to be stuck on a drug price merry-go-round. First, our already high drug prices go up. The cost of all prescription drugs rose by 30% between 2010 and last year. Patients respond with outrage and disbelief. 1,200% increase in one month. People are dying because they can't afford this. Politicians promise big fixes. My administration is launching the most sweeping action in history to lower the price of prescription drugs. I will lower the price of EpiPens, of HIV, AIDS drugs. And drug industry executives respond with a familiar warning. Cut our prices and you'll lose out on new breakthrough treatments. It won't allow innovation. It won't allow the huge cures. What we get is less innovation. The less we make, the less we put in innovation. That threat scares us. We want cheaper drugs today, but we don't want to miss out on the cures of tomorrow. Today, we set aside the fears and look at the facts. Does the evidence back up the industry's claim that reducing profits hurts innovation? Or is it possible to lower prices and keep getting the game-changing drugs everyone wants? From the Annenberg Studio at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm Dan Gorenstein, and this is Tradeoffs. One quick note before we start. When we talk about drug prices today, we're not talking about how much you or I pay. We're focusing on the overall prices drug makers charge the federal government and private insurance companies. Really, how much revenue these companies earn. Okay, on with the show. To really explore this relationship between price and innovation, it's important to understand how new drugs go from an idea in the lab to a pill in your medicine cabinet. Big pharmaceutical companies get most of the headlines, but the process usually starts long before they get involved with someone like Chaitin Kosla. I am a professor at Stanford University. I've had a longstanding interest for nearly two decades in celiac disease. Celiac disease. It's an immune reaction to eating gluten, which is a protein found in wheat, barley, and rye. Gluten-free products might seem like a food fad, but for three million Americans, it's their lifeline. Today, the only treatment for celiac, which can cause diarrhea, anemia, osteoporosis, and in rare cases, lymphoma, is a strict lifelong avoidance of gluten. But in the fall of 2019, pharma giant GlaxoSmithKline purchased a startup that was developing a drug that could represent a new hope for patients, a drug developed by Chaitin. Think of it like an asthma inhaler for celiac disease. It'll be an oral pill if it works. And if it works, I emphasize if it works, then is sufficiently safe. People will be taking it on a daily basis to protect themselves from low to moderate levels of gluten. The next step is to put the drug chain discovered through clinical trials, maybe as soon as this year. But to just get to this point where the drug enters the grueling, expensive testing phase took money, work, and luck. That process is a cultural experience, to say the least. Back around 2006, Chayton had that big Hollywood-esque moment. His team discovered that if they could block the effects of this one molecule, called transglutaminase 2, they could, in theory, allow people with celiac to consume moderate amounts of gluten without getting sick. First, they had to develop a drug prototype, a blueprint of how this scientific insight would work as an actual drug. Fueled by federal research grants, Chain's lab spent years refining their prototype. By 2013, it was ready to pitch, but not to Big Pharma. 
because pharmaceutical companies operate with a certain risk-reward profile, they are unlikely to make investments with a 10-, 20-year horizon. And so that's where venture capitalists come in. They make the earliest investments as we move past the government-funded research into ultimately the pharmaceutical business. Chayton calls venture capitalists the handmaidens of drug development. They put up the risky money, funding small startups and biotech firms they hope will advance the drug even further, enough to make it attractive to the giant drug makers. But even when you have a potential drug that could treat millions of people around the world, finding investors is tough. I have to persuade an investor that if they invest in the drug prototype that had been invented in my lab they have a fighting chance of getting a return on their investment over a 5- to 10-year period of time. Venture capitalists, or VCs, only get that return when a big drug company buys a startup they've invested in. So they're picky about where they put their money. That puts pressure on scientists like Chayton to woo these investors. For every project like mine that gets funded by venture capital at that stage, there are probably nine others that don't. And I think most of us scientists recognize that within those nine, at least four or five have just as good a chance of success if they were to be funded. Promising projects, says Chayton, die on the vine because, one, it's not easy to attract VC money, and two, it can be pretty uncomfortable. He's seen colleagues enter into what he calls a matchmaking game, meeting with five, sometimes ten potential investors. And then say, you know, I really don't have an appetite for this kind of thing. I had reason to be committed to celiac disease. So even if 19 venture capitalists told me Chayton, thanks, but no thanks. I'd still knock on the door of the next 20. Chayton's conviction came from an obligation he felt to the taxpayers who funded all of his initial work, a desire to deliver some kind of return on their investment. And it came from his son, who was diagnosed with celiac at a pivotal moment in Chayton's career. The week after my son got his diagnosis, I got a call from the National Science Board saying that I had received the Waterman Prize. That meant Chayton was going to have $500,000 to research whatever he wanted. The one thought that was the silver lining on this very dark cloud that I was staring at is, I'm a scientist. And not only am I a scientist, I'm a molecular scientist. I have dedicated my career to connecting molecules to human disease. Maybe this is an opportunity for me to start doing research on a subject I had no qualifications to do research on and see how far it could go. 20 years later, that prize money is now a promising drug headed for clinical trials with one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. It only got there after Chayton persuaded San Diego-based Avalon Ventures to invest millions back in 2013. More and more, drugs rely on venture capital to get to market. VC investment in pharma has more than tripled over the last decade to around $17 billion. The industry points to this trend and says lowering drug company profits would mean lowering VC returns, making them less likely to fund the breakthrough treatments of tomorrow. And some economists agree. 
I think it's important to recognize that if you decrease the returns to innovation, that money can just leave the pharmaceutical sector and go to another place where you can make a bunch of money in venture capital like tech. This is Craig Garthwaite. He's an economist at Northwestern who studies drug prices. That venture capital money, that's very mercenary. It's just looking for the highest return. In that sense, if you really reduce the returns, the money will just flow out and we'll get sort of more scooter companies or whatever social media app these guys are going to invest in and we'll get fewer new drugs as a result of that. This is the kind of story industry executives tell when asked about the downside of regulating drug prices, less reward leading to less risk-taking. But here's the thing. The U.S. has never enacted sweeping legislation to drive drug prices down, so we don't actually know what would happen. But academics like Craig assume we would see fewer novel drugs because of the research we do have from when pharma's bottom line has grown. More future profits leads to more investments in innovation. It's 100% clear. We find that evidence from a wide range of different kinds of studies. Craig says researchers have analyzed how industry responded to a range of new incentives, from an aging population to new vaccine laws and government drug programs. Every time, he says, they arrived at the same conclusion. More future profits leads to more investments in innovation. To put it plainly, when there's money to be made, drug makers show up ready, willing, and able which makes sense. What Craig wanted to know, that all the research had yet to answer, was what kind of drugs were created when drug makers saw more dollar signs in their future. Were they treatment breakthroughs or more of the same? So in 2014, he and his co-authors took a closer look at the industry's response to the creation of Medicare Part D. When I came into office, I found a Medicare system that was antiquated and not meeting the needs of America's seniors. In the early 2000s under President Bush, we made a decision as a country that we were going to provide prescription drug insurance for the elderly. We need to bring Medicare into the 21st century to expand its coverage, improve its services. Prior to that point, Medicare did not provide comprehensive prescription drug insurance. Medicare's most pressing challenge is the lack of coverage for prescription drugs. And so we passed that law. It went into effect in 2006. And as a result of it, about 5 million new elderly patients received access to prescription drug insurance. And so people said, well, you know, given what we know already, we should see more drugs aimed at the elderly. What's the basic question that you guys are asking in this paper? So the basic question is, what kind of innovation did we get? Obviously, not all innovation is equal. And there are certain kinds of innovation we might think contribute more to social welfare than other kinds. And what was the assumption that you had, Craig, about how drug makers are going to respond to the creation of uh, literally overnight uh, millions of new customers? Having thought about this question for a while before the study, my intuition going in was that we would get firms investing in products that were both sort of replicating existing science, but also really getting treatments we otherwise might not have gotten. What we ultimately found is that we got far more of the drugs that seem to replicate existing science or go after disease areas for which there are already treatments, and far fewer of the truly new therapeutic options and fewer of the truly new scientific advancements. Were you surprised? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought we would. I thought we might get more of the the more novel treatments. But having spent more time looking at my results and thinking about the underlying economics, 
you realize that we do have some room as a society to make changes and small changes to profits without destroying the engine by which we get truly innovative treatments. And that, that, that is not something I thought going in. That doesn't mean, however, that we can make very large changes to profits and expect that the same result would happen. And so in a way, even though there's this point that the industry makes that economists agree with, that there is a connection, there's a relationship between price and innovation. The more you drive down price, the more that will impact innovation. The big lesson you took from your research was it's not as black and white as maybe it's been purported to be. I think it's clear that the relationship exists. I think it's not as black and white as industry would like you to believe, nor is it as black and white as supporters of regulated prices would like you to believe. There's a, a sort of wide swath of gray area that we have to think about, about what types of products do we want and what type of innovation do we want. And what we're really trying to do then as people who are serious about policymaking is figure out what is the appropriate trade-off that we can have there between access today and products in the future. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Although Craig has come around to the idea that some small changes could be made to drug prices, he still thinks the main message from all this research is tread carefully when it comes to price controls or risk future innovation. Others aren't so sure. I mean, my biggest beef with this area is that I don't think we have nearly enough of an evidence base for the question, if we reduced prices on drugs, what would happen? because we haven't really tried to drive prices down in a regulatory sense before. Like Craig, Stacy Dusetsina is an economist. She's at Vanderbilt. And she also studies drug prices and health policy. She doesn't dispute the basic relationship between price and innovation. I think logically, it just makes sense. But she thinks there is a way to lower prices more aggressively without harming innovation, at least not the kind of innovation we value the most. I think what we need to do is make it very clear that we want to pay for value, that when a drug is being developed, if it has a significant benefit relative to existing treatments and really is an innovative product and not just another drug that does the same thing as a, a drug that already exists, that we signal to the companies, to the investors, that that's what we're willing to pay for. A quick note on value, it's really hard to measure. How do we value a drug that improves a person's memory or one that allows someone to eat foods without fear of becoming ill, like Chaitin Kosla's son? It may seem like putting numbers on the value of improving health is a preposterous idea, but many countries actually try to do it. They do their best to measure the benefit of drugs and then set prices through government negotiations that reflect the value of the drug. Since that process can be so hard and contentious, some in the U.S. have suggested a shortcut. One of the ways that has been proposed to do this 
is by indexing our price in the U.S. to other countries. This has been proposed in both the House Drug Pricing Proposal, H.R. 3, that came out late last year. makes lower drug prices available to all Americans. It stops drug companies from ripping off Americans while charging other countries less for the drug. Let me go and it was also part of the International Pricing Index proposed by the Trump administration. So we're paying a price based on the price that other nations are paying. That's what we're going to pay. And the idea is basically that we would leverage negotiations that happen in other countries where they focus on the value of a product and set a price based on how much clinical benefit that product brings to patients. And in our system, we would just borrow that work and those prices, and we would pay a bit more than those other countries have agreed to pay. And Stacey, A proposal like this could have a so-called chilling effect on these VCs that we're talking about at this top of the show. But you think it's worth it? Yes, absolutely. I think the trade-off, you know, it's all over the map what this particular proposal would do. Um, The Congressional Budget Office estimated it would result in 8 to 15 fewer drugs. The White House Council of Economic Advisors weighed in and said it could reduce the number of drugs by 100. So there's wild guesses about what exactly we're trading off by implementing price negotiations and trying to reduce prices. For decades, the drug industry's constant refrain, cap drug prices, lose out on future cures, has helped paralyze efforts to slow rising drug costs. But the evidence shows it's not that simple. The industry is right. The best research suggests regulating prices would likely lead to fewer new drugs. But it's impossible to predict the number or the novelty of those lost drugs. Would they be slight improvements or true game changers, like a treatment for celiac disease? Perhaps a day will come when we dare to find out. But until then, we will continue sparring over speculation. I'm Dan Gornstein, and this is Tradeoffs. After months of stumping, I have a plan that shows how we can have Medicare for all without raising taxes one cent on middle class families. And debating. You don't have to be in my plan if there's another plan that you would rather keep. It's time to start casting ballots. Next time on Tradeoffs, The View from the Voting Booth. As primary season begins, we'll examine the latest healthcare polling results and speak with voters who say healthcare is their top issue. Subscribe where you get your podcasts. Tradeoffs is produced by Victoria Stern, Courtney Summers, Adam Yaffe, Sarah Dykstra, and Ryan Levy. The Tradeoffs theme song is composed by Ty Sitterman with additional music from Blue Dot Sessions and Only Meath. Special thanks this week to Rachel Sachs, Dan Patterson, Paul Hastings, Michelle Arkin, Michael Carrier, Nicholas Bagley, Richard Frank, Ariel Dora Stern, Brian Smokler, Bill Edwards, Kristen Samuelson, and Paul Ruest. Tradeoffs is supported by the California Healthcare Foundation, Arnold Ventures, and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Additional support from the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics and the Center for Public Health Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania. The views expressed in this are those of the individuals and not those of Tradeoffs staff, advisors, or funders.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.